0: Welcome to episode 27 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, This is Pat Eckler with uh, my co-host Dan Cotter. We're here for a special episode of the podcast to discuss three oral arguments. We will have our normal episode on Sunday where we'll discuss three Indiana Supreme Court arguments heard over the last uh, two weeks that uh, those folks are back doing their arguments in person. On this episode, Dan and I will cover another free speech case. Uh, Mahoney versus BL. And that was heard by the United States Supreme Court. And we'll also discuss a medical malpractice case from the Illinois Appellate Court 4th District, Allen versus Sarah Bush Lincoln Health Center. And continuing their lawyer pinata discussed on episode 24, Justices Bridges, Zenoff, and Burkett of the Illinois Appellate Court 2nd District heard yet another legal malpractice case recently. So we'll get right to it with Mahoney Area School District versus BL, uh, which was heard on Wednesday by the United States Supreme Court. And on Monday, we spoke with Louis Castoria of the Kaufman Wish firm and John Birch of the Alliance Defending Freedom on an important free speech case, Americans Pro- for Prosperity versus Bonta, in which Louis and John represented the uh, petitioners in the uh, consolidated case, Thomas More Law Center versus Bonta. This, deals, this dealt with the requirement of California requiring uh, 501c3s to disclose their donor lists. Tonight, we're covering a second free speech case covered this week, a case involving a school that punished a student for posting obscene language about the cheerleading squad on Snapchat after not making the varsity team. In the words of Justice Leto, she disrespected the school and the, and the sport and said she hated both in the most clear terms using a word that has a special And unique meaning in the English language. She made the statement, however, off campus, out of season, and did not make any threats. Uh, Limitations on speech have been a topic we've talked about frequently on the show, and uh, I've posted and Dan have posted about uh, frequently. Um, Dan, this was an, an oral argument that went for one hour and 51 minutes. It did. And then they did another argument after that. So they were working hard on Wednesday. Dan... Tell us about the oral argument in this case.
2: Sure, and, and, and first and foremost, uh, the word that they used is the only ver- word in the uh, English language that could be a noun, verb, adjective, adverb, and uh, can express uh, with an exclamation point. It's it's one of those very versatile words that can mean a lot of things. And so, in any
0: event, uh, one, one of the but things you're not that- allowed to use, it, but you're not it's, it's you're not allowed to use it at school. The question is, can well, you use it outside school? Well, right, and and whether you can
2: use it at school, um, I won't go into great detail. But when I was in high school, uh, one of my English professors, when I was a freshman, called me hockey mouth because the f bombs that came out of my mouth as I went into the Catholic uh, English class. <laughs> so, and, and I, I played football, and and uh, w- one of the things that I uh, will mention is is I uh, judged the Oklahoma regionals and the. Uh, Chicago regionals and the finals for the National Advocacy uh, Appellate uh, Council or whatever it is, NAAC, which is the ABA's uh, moot court competition. They focused on this case. And one of the questions I asked of all the advocates is if this were a, a male football player, would this have even happened? Would the same uh, treatment have been identified? Because again, if anybody's ever played any sports, the the, the f bombs are prolific in in sports. But in any event, uh, the the real question and, and and what the Supreme Court agreed to hear oral argument on in the petition that was granted had
0: to do with with the case. That's important because the the counsel for respondent kept coming back to what didn't get appealed. Right. That that right. the Third Circuit found that she didn't actually violate the school code. Right. They didn't appeal that. What they appealed was whether they could do anything to her. So I'm sorry. Yeah.
2: No, that, that, that's exactly right. And it's based on a 1969 case, Tinker versus, versus Des Moines, which which all uh, lawyers and many students know. It's a case from the Vietnam uh, era that affected on-campus speech and, and students, and it had to do with armbands that were worn simply armbands. Um, and for those that, you know, you think about armbands and, and okay, what's the real issue? And what, what Tinker and the Supreme Court came up with in uh, 1969 was a test. They said, look, you don't leave your First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse door when you enter, uh, but there are limitations because it's a schoolhouse setting and we have to have, the primary focus has to be education. And and the test they Looked at was substantial disruption uh, to the to the classroom and the environment for learning. Right, so if there's a lot of uproar and things going on, uh, that, that 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 this would happen. The Tinker case was a case, as as you mentioned, Pat, that was on campus, uh, that that dealt with when you're in school, and of course, in that uh, the 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 teachers and the faculty are kind of in. Uh, the role of parents because they're supervising and have to keep safety. So that it, so that there, there are abilities to enforce it on campus.
0: They are acting in loco parentis, as we right. mentioned several times Absolutely. during the argument. Absolutely.
2: But what this case had to deal with and what the Supreme Court uh, granted was whether or not uh, Tinker could, could apply in the off-campus setting. As you noted, it was out of season. It was on a Saturday. It was on Snapchat and... Uh, those things disappear. Somebody took a photo of it and, and then brought it to the school. Uh, in one of the depositions, the coach admitted that the main disruption was when he went out of class to tell the uh, student that she was going to be suspended for a year.
0: So from the, the team, uh, not from the team, from the
2: team. And that's important too, because there was a lot of questions about okay, this is this is a program, right? And they have their own rules, but but if the school did it, could could it be enforced? Uh, One one of the things I mentioned in Tinker that I I, I think is of interest is that we often uh, hear about Justice Hugo Black and his purist view of the First Amendment, that the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law and that the First Amendment, you can't do anything. Uh, Believe it or not, in in Tinker in 1969, this purist was one of the dissenters uh, from the Tinker decision saying that uh, uh, that 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 it was uh, political speech or only, and that and that that it wasn't protected. So uh, believe it or not, um, this in subsequent decades, there's been cases like bongs for Jesus and others that have narrowed, but they still have all hits. You know, bong we're, hits. Going
0: to, we, we're going to take we're going to take yeah. a coke for 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 yeah. for, 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 yeah. the, for the for the Son of God.
2: But but it was but but they've all been narrowed. Uh, they've narrowed somewhat, tinker, but at the same time they've kept the. Real principle that Tinker applies to on campus or events that are related to school. Um, the, the the challenge here, uh, and, and this is a hard case in some ways, but the challenge here is that, is that we've now in a 21st century, and that everything is is kind of mixed, right? And there's and, and we see more and more. And I know Justice Sotomayor kind of asked this, and some others they asked about how do you, you know, really distinguish uh, uh, between on-campus and, and how do things get uh, implicated if, if it's back on campus. Uh, we have really, I, I think, the issue of 24-7 school control here. And at one point, Justice Amy Coney Barrett noted in questioning the petitioner, she, she stated, high school students have the same rights as anyone else, although the rights are somewhat reduced once hit schoolhouse but nothing in Tinker suggests it applies outside the school environment. Uh, as the appellate advocate, I think, did very strongly, David Cole, he said if the court were to permit schools to discipline anything any time a student says, and if someone at the school might read the post and be offended, then the petitioner view would permit schools to regulate the students 24-7, resulting in kids having no free speech and resulting in the students carrying the schoolhouse with them which is a reverse, essentially, of Tinker. Uh, when, when he said that, Justice uh, uh, John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, wasn't too happy about that. He he, he uh, had talked about Tinker as being this this uh, major uh, uh, negative, and and uh, uh, Justice John Roberts kind of forced it back. Uh, as you mentioned, Alito said that this was she offended at the school. It was a very it was a very generic uh statement that she said she said she hated school she didn't name it she hated cheer she hated softball which is not even uh, school related uh, well it was
0: a private uh, it was a private travel softball right. team apparently right. and and she she was she just was venting about you know not having made the team
2: right and justice Kavanaugh, he was very solicitous of the emotions of teenagers which is kind of surprising you hear the
0: supreme court <laughs> worried about how teenagers and mr cole Was like you know we have to give teenager we have to give teenagers uh, you know people the ability to express themselves to talk with their friends to to voice their feelings and Snapchat's apparently and is is what the First Amendment was talking about.
2: I I, I missed that part, but okay. And there was a there was a Michael Jordan reference. We've had Taylor Swift in the past, so. We have spaceships, we've got a hip court, you know, even though they're all <laughs> old except for the newer justices, they, they, they try to be hip, I guess. Yes, they do. Um, Lisa Blatt, who was uh, the uh, appellant advocate, she said time and geography are meaningless. Uh, she, she seemed to have a, you know, a, a, a hard case, at least in her case in chief. Uh, but one of the things that I think I would commend to all listeners and everybody is her rebuttal was probably one of the most masterful two minutes in the history of any advocacy on appellate level I've ever heard. She went to each point of any of the justices that asked her or a appellee, and she also attacked uh, some of the statements and, and things that the appellee advocate had said in two minutes. It was brilliant.
0: I I, I will say I agree with Dan. I would also commend to you comm- uh, her um visceral rebuttal in the McGirt case. Yeah. Um, now, she lost that one. She has an extraordinary record. She is a very, very accomplished Supreme Court advocate. Um, she didn't win McGirt. McGirt is the case from Oklahoma where they found half of Oklahoma is actually still in a reservation. It's a right. pretty shocking finding. Right. Um, and she argued the fir- McGirt the first time it got argued, not the second time, because Let's just say her style, I wouldn't recommend to others. Uh, right. She is very, uh, she's a bit too friendly sometimes and a bit too familiar with the justices. And she is confrontational. And, she is. But she is extraordinarily effective and she's yeah. she's whip smart. And But I, I, I would not recommend that anyone else adopt her particular style. It works for her. It has worked extraordinarily well. It's, it's a unique boy, style it's, it's, and it's I agree risky. with you.
2: It's very risky. Um, Alito was having issues. He said that he thought the rule was, uh, again, too vague here. And he, he, uh, uh, reference was made, uh, at least once, uh, during oral arguments, I believe by the appellee to a, to a case that, uh, when Samuel Alito was still in the Third Circuit, uh, there was a case from 2001 Sachs versus State College Area School District. And Alito and the panel in that case wrote a three zero decision finding the school's anti-harassment policy was too broad and concluded. However, as Tinker made clear, the undifferentiated fear or apprehension of disturbance is not enough to justify a restriction on student speech. Although the school district correctly asserts that it has a compelling interest in promoting an educational environment that is safe and conducive to learning, it fails to provide any particularized reason as to why it anticipates substantial disruption from the broad swath of student speech Prohibited under the policy, and he said that uh, according to Tinker, it, it failed under the prohibition test. And what was at, at issue in Sachs was an anti-harassment policy that really was pretty broad. And and again, uh, that was referred to, I think, by the appellate in this case.
0: One of the, one of the Justice th- Alito um, was not quite. A, he was very concerned, as he always is, with free speech rights. He was. Uh, but not in the same way that others, particularly with regards to teenagers. What he's worried about is what's the general rule? Where do we draw the line? Because this is going to be other places. And he is very, very concerned about where lines are drawn with regards to free speech.
2: And that's, and again, in that moot court competition, that's something we ask the advocates on both sides. If you take this to its extreme, what's the limit then, right? 24 hours, 24 seven can, can a sleepover party be enough? You know, it's, it's uh,
0: well. There, there, this was the king of the hypotheticals. We went yeah. everything from geometry homework to right. is there a different thing if you're on the basketball team? Does it matter if it's you know what 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 is? They're having massive problems trying to draw lines here, right? Um, and and let's just say if we could change gears for just a moment, we've talked about Mr. Cole, we've talked about Miss Blatt, the government. Right again, like in like like in the uh, Americans for Prosperity case, they're in the middle. They're just like this. They're the meat in the sandwich. Only it's like it's like rotten meat that's (laughs) that's got it's 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 (laughs) rancid meat. I don't know what the government is up to, and I and I can't say I know. In the Americans for Prosperity case, they they changed their position from where the Trump administration was. I don't think. Th- they did that in this case. I don't think so. And, and so it's not a question of Trump's administration versus Biden in this. I just don't know what they're doing. They're not I, helping. The other thing is this, is I'm unaware that the that the federal government is terribly involved in making school policies like this. This seems to be the kind of thing that the school board should be doing. Right. Um, of course, I think the school board should be doing a lot more and perhaps the right. Department of Education should be doing a lot less right. but on, on a whole range of issues related to education. But these would be the seem to be the kinds of things that be uniquely local, uh, for the parents and the teachers and the administrators and the students of a particular school team to sort these things out. Um,
2: I agree, and and, and I think that, like you said, I think there was a lot of hypotheticals. I think there was also a lot of concern, both by Breyer and Gorsuch and other justices, about the fact that you know Breyer kept said several times, "We can't write a treatise on this subject." And I think uh, some of the other justices agreed with him. Justice Gorsuch used the word delta and, and probably overused that word. But he said, what's the delta between the two positions? Because at, at some level, uh, even the apolibus will say, well, of that, of course, you could uh, regulate if it led to disruption. And, uh, you know. Yeah, they uh, came up
0: with their test was if it was perv- if it was pervasive interpersonal harassment and it disrupted the school. Right. Lord, I mean, and and the thing that was amazing is you had Blatt saying that the respond, that the respondent's rule was more restrictive, and you had Cole saying the petitioner's was, and let's just say that neither Cole nor Blatt were very happy with the government's position. They right. both hated the government's position right. uh, for different reasons, of course, but they were both very rather rather unimpressed with what the United States had to say.
2: And in some cases, some of the hypos of, of Blatt at one time said if someone brought it, a bunch of Confederate flags to the school, and then people were objecting to that. That the objecting students would be disciplined for causing the disruption, and it's so there. There was a lot of that kind of talk, and I, you know, I, I think you know, uh, it, it sounded like, and, and we'll do, in predictions for sure to go wrong, but I think that the justices here were really struggling with trying to find a, a narrow rule and out of this. to not get The a, rule that, may that, be know, so
0: narrow because yeah. it came up in the argument. It doesn't often. Yeah. dig may be in our future. Um, right. and I'm not going to predict a dig. That, that's a, that's, that's a, but we've talked about it. That's a dismissed as improvidently granted. Right. There was a suggestion. There was. That, but from Justice Alito. Right. Should we really decide this case? This is crazy. Right. Um We can't, we can't make heads or tails out of this. There may be a dig. There um, may be. Uh, that That's a, that's a possibility here. Right. Um, that would be, you know, so it's a, it's a t- it's a hard case. It is, a- and and it's a hard case because it presents very difficult facts. That I'm not sure what nine justices have to say about this topic, and yeah. I, I I I just don't know what they have to offer. They're I, they're in I a terrible either. position. I don't either. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with something I think we'll be able to sort out, but has no fewer issues. Allen versus. Sarah Bush Lincoln Health Center. Welcome
2: back to segment two of episode 27 of the podcast. Our second case today is Ellen versus Sarah Bush Lincoln. And Pat, this is a case involving a fourth district case on lawyer conduct. We'll talk about a, a second district case in our third segment But this is a case about lawyer conduct at the trial level. And And a whole lot more. And a lot more, yeah, absolutely. Involves alleged inappropriate statements made by the defense counsel that appellant called cumulative. The issue here, in addition to questions and the underlying action about proximate cause and agency and empty chair defenses, is could repeated improper comments from plaintiff's counsel during oral argument, some of which were objected to and subject which were not but were argued to be cumulative, lead to a reversal of substantial jury verdict in favor of the plaintiff in the medical malpractice case that was the underlying case. One of the interesting things in the oral argument was a justice pointedly asked appellant counsel if a motion for mistrial had been made based on the incomplete impeachment, statements made during closing argument, and other instances of alleged misconduct, and the response was no. Also, not all comments uh, were objected to, as Pat will talk about, and, and Pat, we've talked repeatedly about re- preserving the record and, and making a, a good uh, a record. And uh, in this case, uh, that was not necessarily uh, uh, taken care of, I would say. Um, uh, so uh, we, we've, uh, as noted, uh, you know, making objections, asking the court for what you want or need and, and things of that. Industry. So why don't you tell us about this oral argument and the interesting... Uh, Cross examination, I would say, of the uh, of the lawyer.
0: So, what before we get to that, and we're going to play a portion of the of the oral argument in that regard, when Justice Steigman dug into trial counsel for the uh, plaintiff, Apple, plaintiff below Lee he was also arguing it on appeal. And we're going to talk about the wisdom or lack of that in this particular circumstance. This is a medical malpractice case in which the way the the uh, The issue was a spinal epidural abscess, which is an infection of the epidural space that can lead to uh, devastating neurological deficits. It's usually located in the thoracic or lumbar spine. And the standard of care, according to counsel for plaintiff, is if you suspect this, you do an MRI. And apparently, the MRI wasn't done, and the plaintiff suffered the devastating neurological deficits that we discussed. Um so the first thing to keep in mind as we talk about all the time every one of these alleged errors is an abusive discretion standard. And apparently the trial court on the post trial motion we talked about post trial motions recently denied it in a single spaced 13 page opinion which means that's pretty detailed that's unusual generally for a trial court to do that kind of a thing usually it's an oral or it's a more perfunctory opinion this is a very detailed opinion. He went out of his way, and the impression you get from this judgment is it was substantial. Um, it, 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 this is a big judgment that got hit uh, well above what I think the defendants were expecting. I think so. Um, and it so there, there's, there's that. Let's just kind of set it up. So the starting where Dan kind of left off, I can't do it any better than what justice Steigman started off with when about two minutes into counsel for plaintiff appellee, he started in with this. Hey,
1: uh, I have uh, some questions for you first. Uh, Do you agree that closing arguments must be limited to evidence presented at trial and to reasonable inferences that may be drawn from that evidence? Yes, sir. Uh, Then I have several questions about the closing argument you made in this case. Uh, First, you made this statement, quote, did anyone to your knowledge outside of the lawyers ever tell you that Dr. Dale misread the CT scan Answer: no? The lawyers cooked that up the lawyers cooked up the following around with the bands and the cameras unquote as you know mr phillips um the rules governing closing argument prevent lawyers to attack the parties but not to attack the integrity of the lawyers so what's your justification for claiming that the lawyers quote cooked up unquote anything in this case and
0: it didn't get much better For Mister Phillips, from there, it went on Uh, on for about ten minutes. Ten minutes like that, and he went through Justice Steigman being the he in that sentence, five or six different examples during the closing argument, where he asked, "You said this in certain cases. The judge admonished you. You continued. You did it again. You got admonished again. You still continued. What's your justification?" That's that's how this went. Now, if counsel for Lee had not been trial counsel, that would have been a more difficult argument for or difficult line of questioning. Right. But because it was counsel who he's able to, he got the lawyer standing in front of him who did what he had to admit in certain cases was improper. His best argument in response ain't a bad one, doesn't justify it. Ain't a bad one. It's they waived it, Judge. And at one point at the end of this lit, of this, Cross-examination by Justice Steigman, the uh, counsel for Apple East said, waived, 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 waived. They didn't raise these arguments. They didn't make the objection. They didn't move for mistrial. Wow. Uh, they wa- I think they objected to enough that might get it reversed. And as I posted on LinkedIn, there was a case, uh, Kanwoko, versus Advocate, which was from the second district, in which I think defense counsel made improper, but far less improper comments than were made by counsel in this case. And that resulted in a reversal of a defense verdict. We'll see if if what happens here. But that was the flavor of the argument. Now, just so you don't think that they didn't like the plaintiff, (laughs) just wait. (laughs) They weren't a big fan of what the appellant had to say either. No. The appellant had a legal argument that uh, didn't that went over like a lead balloon. It did, and the lead balloon was this: they argued that they you heard in that that quote, Doctor Dale. Now, Doctor Dale wasn't sued; he was the radiologist. Doctor Stout appeared to be the ER doctor who didn't order the MRI. So, Doctor Dale. They they tried to say Dr. Dale was a um, they argued an empty chair or a non-party defense a sole proximate cause defense is how it's couched in Illinois right We talked about it before and we've talked about this before and they didn't give the long form twelve point oh four IPI instruction for those that are familiar um, that's the 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 longer form of the of the causation instruction that applies when you have evidence of sole proximate cause. Instead, they gave a modified IPI 105.11 instruction, which is on agency. And agency wasn't an issue. Great. That so far, we're good. The argument they made was, is that if Dr. Dale wasn't their agent, or sorry, if he was their agent, they still could argue proximate cause. Let's just say the court wasn't buying that. If you're all. responsible for what this person did, then you're responsible for what this person did, I think is the law. And I think counsel for Apple Lee argued quite rightly that I think that's the law.
2: It, it, um, just, it, Justice Steigman at one point asked it, do you have any case law for these propositions? Of course, and, no. And,
0: and they they didn't have a pro And I, I, as much as I would like that to be the law as defense counsel in these cases, right. I just don't think that's what it is. Now that doesn't mean they shouldn't have given the long form twelve point oh four, and maybe it was an abuse of discretion to do that, and maybe there wasn't evidence of this agency. But at the end of the day, I, I I don't know where that gets them because legally speaking, they were on the hook for if this if the jury found that he was their apparent agent, they were on the hook for him uh, if he if he did wrong. I don't know if he did or not. I, I, that wasn't the issue, but that brings us to. Um, uh, Another question that came up, and that might be a subject of my column next week, is my hobby horse of special interrogatories. Yep. And Justice McDade, I think it was Justice McDade. I could be wrong. I think it was. I think you're right. She she asked counsel for um, she asked counsel for uh, plaintiff appellate, quote, what is your position regarding whether or not some type of special interrogatory would have helped us out here? In terms of determining exactly what the basis for the jury's decision, in other words, did they find uh, Doctor Dale was the sole proximate cause? If they did, you know, did they find Doctor Stout breached the standard of care in this way or another way that ca- approximately caused the plaintiff's injury? To which plaintiff's counsel argued, and he is a former president of the Illinois Trial Lawyers Association, said, "quote I h- agree wholeheartedly. It would have." And I think under the Mikalik versus Ford, I think the Supreme Court has held, not only do they have a right to object, they have to tender an alternate version, which they did not. And they didn't tender any special interrogatories in this case, and they certainly could have. And they could have tested the verdict simply by asking, quote, was Dr. Stout approximate cause of Mark Allen's injuries, the plaintiff, Mark Allen. Right. And if they didn't like that, they could have taken... Any or, or all of the six allegations that Dr. Stout asked was Dr. Stout approximate cause of it, of the injuries to Mark Allen. They didn't do it, and there's no way to test this general verdict when they didn't do it. I agree, Mr. Phillips. That's exactly right. And that's why special interrogatory shouldn't have been gotten rid of.
2: And um, and, and, and this has been a, a theme on several episodes because the, it comes up over and over and, and over again and, in and just to, arguments. And,
0: and just to make the point— Because I wrote this two years ago, quote, special interrogatories are essential under Illinois law for courts to ascertain the propriety of a jury's verdict and indeed for the jury itself to ensure that it is coming to the correct conclusion. Testing the elements of a cause of action and in particular negligence and causation as well as the fundamentals of an affirmative defense is necessary to safeguard the integrity of the jury's verdict. What we're talking about there is exactly what happened in this case. It's a causation case. It's an agency case, maybe. But <laughs> maybe. you can test those things specifically with special interrogatories. This is exactly the kind of case we had in mind when we wrote that and we advocated because everybody would know we wouldn't be having this argument right. if the jury had the special interrogatory. But they didn't. So anyway, that's off my soapbox. <laughs> so what they have to show by the comments made by Mr. Uh uh, Phillips, uh, is that there were that there was substantial prejudice that would have changed the outcome. They failed to move for a mistrial, and the question from Justice Steichman was, "At what point did you decide that you weren't receiving a fair trial and not file your motion for?" And I'm adding in here, "and not file your motion for uh, for directed verdict." Um, so that was that was quite the. Issue now the other thing you heard it referred to in the quote that I played from Justice Steigman was uh, counsel for plaintiff uh, talked about showing uh, the video and surveillance and what they did is apparently when the plaintiff came to Chicago for an independent medical exam they f- they had a crew uh, videotape and this often happens to try to okay. see uh, if he was disabled or if he um, uh, you know if he had pro if he is disabled as he claims. This is a very common thing where you know the per- where the person's going to be. and You want to see. Well, apparently it showed him as disabled as he claims to be uh, and with his children at the time, apparently. And they played the video in opening and there was a question about the foundation and where it came from and you shouldn't follow. And Plants Council often uses this, turns this around on Defense counsel when it doesn't prove fruitful. They turn it around and they say, see, they're following this guy around. This is this is surreptitious, nasty stuff. They shouldn't do it. And here, see my client. They wanted to sell my client faking it. He wasn't faking it. My guy was hurt. right? And, and that was shown one time during opening. It wasn't shown. There wasn't a foundation laid for it, but the jury was kind of told, here's my guy. Um, so there was that, and he made comments about you not being – you shouldn't follow a disabled person around with this kid. And that was not where the court said, no, you can't go there. You can show it, and that's the end of it. Um and so, as I said, all of this is abusive discretion standard. Um, and but, do you get into the cumulative effect? Do you get into um, uh, you know the legal argument? I don't think is going to go very far for for the defendant. But the are they are they are they more unhappy with Phillips' comments than they are with the waiver? or the um, forfeiture, because waiver and forfeiture are a limitation on the parties. Right. They're not a limitation on the court. If the court finds that the process was so damaged by the comments, they could still find that the um, uh, the statements were improper. And and, and defi- not only find that their statements were proper, more pro- more precisely find that the trial, they were deprived of a fair trial and order, order a new trial. Um, so, there we are. A very uh, interesting and difficult case raises a ton of issues as so many medical malpractice cases do, which is why we probably s- cover a, a disproportionate number of them. Uh, they lead to a lot of issues and a very complex case legally. Dan, do you have anything to add on to that?
2: No, just just to, to piggyback on some of the comments you made about uh, questions of, of the uh, uh, plaintiff. Uh, in rebuttal, uh, Steigman really, really hit the advocate again and said, how do you respond? This is to advocate the,
0: for, for appellant. This for, is appellant, appellant, not yet. Mm-hmm.
2: How, how do you respond to the 11 waived, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, that you never objected to these 11 things? And uh, the appellant tried to say, well, you know, it was cumulative, like you said, but, uh, you know, and that's uh, so, so, yeah, I, I think Steigman was, was uh, not, not friendly to either of them in terms yeah. of their... Their style and approach to the
0: trial. <laughs> no, it, it really, uh, it, it, it's, it sounds like it was a bit of a mess. It did. And so with that, we'll come back with another mess uh, <laughs> with Corey versus New. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the podium and panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you.
2: And we're back with our third segment, episode 27 and kind of in this theme with uh, lawyers and conduct. Uh, The second district took up another uh, case uh, Corey versus New, which is our third case today. And this really involved a, a kind of a, a very complex uh, fact pattern and, and dealt with the role that the rules of professional conduct play in the practice of law. Uh, but with respect to professional liability claims against lawyers, the rules of professional conduct are really a, merely a guide as a standard of care defines the duty owed but it's not exhaustive or determinative of actual malpractice. And what happened here was a lawyer was found to have a fiduciary duty.
0: That doesn't mean you should violate
1: them.
2: Right, absolutely. (laughs) That's not Not, a good idea. We don't recommend it. You you don't want the ARDC in your your business. Um, uh, Here, a lawyer was found to have a fiduciary duty uh, to a client of the firm he did not represent and who he had not stolen from. It was his law partner and wife in a two-person firm, who was alleged to have done that uh, misconduct. There are a lot of discussion in this case about the rules of professional conduct, discipline of lawyers, fiduciary duties, and the appellant was trying to argue that small firms, everyone has fiduciary duties. Uh, the panel was not buying it and really struggled with questions of bright line tests and how this would be administered, uh, how a, an RPC violation could lead to bell practice. And and as we've noted, the 2nd District remains busy with attorney-client questions. In this case, you know, does a lawyer owe a fiduciary duty to a client of the firm who they they do not represent personally? Is it different for uh, practitioners in small firms? If the the lawyers are related, does it matter? Or married, as in this case, uh, there were questions about cousins and nephews and stuff. What role, if any, do the pro- rules of professional conduct play in forming the basis of an attorney's tort duty? Should prior discipline of a subordinate inform what duties the supervising attorney has? And so these are all questions that came up in this, this uh, oral argument. Uh, and the second district will again, uh, probably, you know, within days of us uh, taping this, we'll have a decision or, or relatively soon, the second district is pretty quick. Uh, it was, argued recently in a continuing run of arguments before the court on disputes with lawyers, and we cover those uh, in a recent episode. And uh, here, again, we we have a two-person law firm. The president was the husband um, and saw the wife allegedly defraud her clients using the client trust account. She was disbarred and criminal charges were filed against her. The husband uh, obtained a summary judgment in his favor and in in his favor and his individual capacity for breach of fiduciary duty. No, it was duty. entered against him. It was entered against him, that's against, right. Against yeah. the husband yeah. For, yeah. for breach of fiduciary duty. Yep. So, Pat, why don't you tell us about these uh, the, the oral arguments here in this, uh, in this uh, case of uh, uh, convoluted, uh, overlapping duties.
0: So, I want to pick up where Dan left off, and that is the breach of fiduciary duty. And the principal argument made by the lawyer for... The appellant was in a larger firm, and he's at a firm of 75, a very good firm um, downtown. He said, in a firm of 75, we've got the resources to have the kind of checks on the trust account to make sure this kind of thing happens. And counsel for Apple e came back and said, well, I was at Jenner and Block, one of the largest firms in the city. You know, we had the same kind of control as trying to get money out of the trust account is really hard. I agree. I'm at a firm that, and Dan is at a larger firm. Um... You know, trying to get money out of a trust account ain't easy. Two signatures sometimes, depending upon the size of the money, you don't put money, you know, you're very careful about what money you put in there if you're going to need to get it, if if the client's going to need to get it out anytime soon, depending on how it comes in. If it's wired, if it comes in by check, is it going to get clear in time with the time they have to revoke the wire so you don't overdraw it? It's It's a big mess. So the trust account is dealt with very carefully at larger firms because they have the resources to do it. But at a small firm, a two-person firm, and people forget or don't realize maybe that the vast majority of lawyers, 90% of lawyers, practice in settings of five or 10 or smaller. Right. They don't practice in firms that have even a team, even in the teens number of lawyers, never mind in the dozens, hundreds, or thousands of lawyers. Those are the firms that get all the attention. It's very few lawyers practice in that setting. Especially, Most practice especially
2: out of the city of Chicago. Exactly. Get further and further away from the city.
0: Much smaller practice. Now, this was a suburban practice, a uh, husband and wife team, both of whom had a long, a, a multiple run-ins with the uh, Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Commission, which is the regulator for attorney attorneys in Illinois. Um, and so he, the, the, the Stanley knew, N-I-E-W, was the president of the two-person firm. He uh, reviewed the books on a monthly basis with their bookkeeper and that included the trust account. and Apparently, his wife was running money in and out for this client, Corey, who Stanley didn't represent. And She apparently was taking money in and putting money out and, ta- and pocketing it, apparently. I, I don't know what, what actually happened, but it,
1: it's it sounded clear. like it was about
0: $2.5 million she ended up taking from this client that she had run through the trust account on mining contracts or something. It was kind of bizarre. But he didn't catch it. The bookkeeper didn't catch it, um, and he didn't have a relationship with this client. But notwithstanding that, the court said, you're you're responsible as a fiduciary because of your position in the firm. So extrapolate that to the large firm or any firm. Is every lawyer in the partnership now going to be liable for what their client, what their partner does if they're in some sort of supervisory role? And so you have to look at Rule 5.1c2, which deals with a supervising attorney being responsible for the conduct of the subordinate attorney. And that only applies if the supervising attorney orders the conduct and knows of the conduct at the time. So either knows or, sorry, orders or ratifies the conduct and knows of it you can't very well ratify things you don't know about, and you can't order them if you don't know about them. So they're kind of redundant. But either way, in this case, there's no dispute he didn't know about it. And there's it, so there's no dispute he didn't know about it. He, he, he wasn't uh, this, and this wasn't his client. So how could he be responsible under the rules? The trial court imposed a duty apparently based on like 19 factors. He was the president of the firm. It was a two-person firm. They were married the rules of professional conduct played in there her prior conduct her prior you know run-ins with the uh, with the ARDC played into the formulation of this duty but the court really focused on the duty or the the inclusion of the rules of professional conduct which can't include which don't form the duty the duty is a common law duty. It's the standard of care. It applies in all professional liability claims, be it medical malpractice, as we talked about in the last ep- of the last segment about the duty is when you see a or suspect this kind of abscess, this spinal epidural abscess, you do an MRI. That's the standard of care. Right. Um, in this, and so we look at it whether it's an insurance broker or an engineer or an architect or whatever it happens to be there's a standard of care and you get an expert to come in, a person in that same field that says this is what a reasonably careful professional does in this circumstance. So it ain't the rules. The rules can inform it, but they're not dispositive. So how how do you deal with this if you're going to impose fiduciary duties on people simply because someone else does something you weren't involved in? I want me to give an example. Years ago, one of my partners represented uh, an insurance company in a legal malpractice case where they rescinded the policy based upon one one uh, to another two person firm not married one of the partners had committed malpractice didn't tell the other and when the partner who filled out the insurance application said they had knew of no claims that he didn't know of any claims notwithstanding that the po- the court held no that was a misrepresentation because it was material they wouldn't have written. They would have written the policy, or they would have hired, charged a higher premium. So there's another circumstance where you got to be careful who your partners are, right. um, and you got to try. You got to be able to sure to trust them. Apparently, this guy couldn't trust his wife. She's thieving from the clients, allegedly. Um, don't do that. Uh, and so, how how and where the duty comes from? I will say the court was very very skeptical of the duty that the court, the trial court, imposed. Um, and worried about the consequences for firms small and large. Right. This is not a small firm problem. This is not a large firm, problem. this is an all firm problem uh, of how you, if you're going to impose fiduciary duties on someone you didn't represent, someone you never talked to, right. had no role in stealing their money. So you, and fiduciary duties arise when someone has a special relationship of trust. You never met these people. How could he have a special relationship of trust such that he owed them this heightened duty because fiduciary duty, breach of fiduciary duty, not only imposes compensatory damage, it imposes attorneys' fees and can impose punitive damages because you're in this heightened duty of tri- this heightened uh, uh, position of advice. He didn't provide them any advice, and the so one wonders was, well, how his, could there be? I'm sorry.
2: Yeah, I mean, and, and the response to that I was, well, he was president of the firm, and like you said, he reviewed the financials, but again that that's awful broad right again
0: well yeah I mean is that going to hold the executive committee of every firm I mean responsible for things that their subordinates do it, it out well beyond what the rules of professional conduct require it, it, it turns out that fraud feasers are good at fraud and, mm-hmm. and and when they are then they yeah, they're, they're good at hiding it from their their in this case their spouse mm-hmm. uh, who they're they're you know presumably seen once in a while outside of the office. Uh, so very, uh, very troubling if, if this rule stands in its current form, uh, it's hard to see a way you can limit this case to its facts and there's going to be lawyers looking very carefully at, uh, how they conduct themselves in their firm with regards to trust, trust accounts in particular, um, if, if, if this ruling stands.
2: And, and in rebuttal, one of the justices asked, you know, to respond to counsel's argument about 51C doesn't apply here, and, and the response was that the other side was conflating two issues and mixing apples and oranges with respect to, like you said, disciplinary rules versus the fiduciary duty, and uh, yeah,
0: that's it. and the source so, of the standard, the source of the standard of care, which is the standard of care, which is provided by experts, not by any rules. Right. It can be informed by it, but it can't be created by it solely. It's the purpose of the rules is penal. right it's It's to regulate the practice for the benefit of of clients. It is not the standard of care. In some cases, the standard of care is higher than what the rules require. In some cases, it's lower than what the standard of care requires. Um, there, we are. there we are. So with that, Dan, I think that brings us with predictions sure to go wrong for uh, for for this week or for these the, these three uh,
2: these, these three, three cases, these three cases at least. We'll update our record
0: on Sunday when we do our full episode. Yep. So Mahoney Area School District versus BL. I, I, I like your uh,
2: view of uh, improvidently granted, but I don't think they'll go there. I think they're going to come up with a narrow rule that says off-campus can be if it causes the substantial disruption, just like in Tinker. So a very narrow rule that says it could be off-campus, but only if it gets carries over into the school setting.
0: Yeah, and what is school conduct? There's a lot of questions about what is school conduct? Is it is it cheating on the geometry test? That was actually a question. Uh geometry homework or and then it got ever closer and you're like, going, really?" I don't know. I mean, the cheating thing to me seems like
2: uh, that that to me is not even the same as a tinker. That's not speech, that's a
0: That's a, act. That, that's, that's conduct.
2: Bad misconduct, right? That's Yeah. That, that's a, the it's speech a crime is in, of sorts.
0: Yeah, the the speech is ancillary to the conduct of cheating. That's just the method of the cheating. Right. Um, So I'm not sure that really applies. I don't either. Um, Yeah, I agree. There's going to be some sort of narrow opinion. I think they're going to try to come up with something that works for everybody. But it wouldn't surprise me if they dig the case.
2: And, and, Um, and, And if they do come up with a decision, I do think it'll be a fairly large majority just because it seemed like all the justices were like, you know, what in the hell? Are we supposed to do with this?
0: Yeah, they're really not sure what to do. No. Uh, so then we come to Allen versus Sarah Bush Lincoln. Uh, how bad is too bad?
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't know here. I think I, I think there is a strong argument that you didn't object or, or go for a mistrial, or like you said, you you say at the end of the closing argument, look, I don't want to interfere, but that whole thing was was offensive and prejudicial.
0: Yeah, we did talk about this off air before we started, is that one of the reasons why they may not have objected is because you don't want to interrupt and look like a jerk in front of the in front of the jury. But then the, the remedy is, at the end of the closing, before the jury gets charged, is get a sidebar, make your record, say, judge, half of what that guy just said is nonsense. It should be stricken. Uh, you know, a curative instruction isn't going to get it done. It's cumulative. Give us a mistrial or something. If they had said at some point during this trial the word mistrial, this would be an easy case, yeah. but they didn't, and that's and that's really problematic. Um, they needed to have done it before judgment. They didn't do it, um, and, and and that's that's a problem. Notwithstanding, given the Konwoko case, and given the level of the comments made, and given that they objected to, I think enough of the comments. It's they not did like they didn't object to any of them. They a- objected to enough of them. And vote, those vote. are worse than what was said by defense counsel and Konwoko. I think there's going to be a reversal. I think you're right. Um, and then we come to Corey versus new. Uh, uh, can there really be fiduciary duties for somebody that never met the client and didn't steal the money?
2: I, I, I think that's a bad precedent being set. Like you said, for small firms, big firms, it doesn't any firm. matter. Any firm. And that's
0: and, and well outside of lawyers. You can think of insurance brokers. You can think of, you know, the only place where it, where a duty of care or a fiduciary duty is still imposed on insurance brokers in Illinois is in the context of thieving premium. Right. You can think of a partnership, a small insurance brokerage where you could impose a fiduciary duty on a partner in an insurance brokerage where his partner's the one that stole the money and never he never met the clients. Right. I I I know. Yeah. I'm not <laughs> I, buying this. I, I think that they're, they're going to, they're at the very least going to narrow the hell out of that rule Right. or they're going to reverse it and send it back. I don't see how you can impose a fiduciary duty in this circumstance. I, nah, I, I really goes don't. Back. All right. And so with that, Dan, um, we will be, um, we're done for today. We'll be back on Sunday with three cases from the Indiana Supreme court, uh, which will be a lot of fun because you know, they're, it's, they're Hoosiers and they're fun.
2: And as always, we'll have to talk about petitions for leave to, to appeal. For transfer. Or other granted, right? Or transfer. Exactly. exactly. It's, an, it's, a, it's a bizarre concept, but it's... Uh,
0: it's what they do. It is there. All right. See everybody Sunday.
2: I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler... We thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.